Uh, anyone seen the Avengers yet? I really want to go this weekend. The Avengers opened, right? I think it blew the doors off of uh, even Harry Potter. As for, yeah, as far as, mo- as far as money, money gotten, right? Yeah. Now, if you're not nerd savvy like me, what are the Avengers? The Avengers are a team of superheroes that that team up only when. The world is in dire straits when the worst enemies face humanity. The Avengers come together. They are made up of a bunch of different superheroes, some that you may have heard of, Iron Man, Thor, Captain America, the Hulk, and there's a few others that are, for some of you, maybe minor characters. On any normal day... (laughs) What? On any normal day, the Avengers don't really hang out. It's not like they go and have coffee together. In fact... There's some personality issues on this team. They, some of them don't even really like each other. And what brings them together, reluctantly at that, is a common villain. A common mission that they have to join forces together in order to defeat. And, of course, that's one way to create unity. You pick an enemy worse than your acquaintances, and your acquaintances become your allies, right? Countries do this in war all the time. If they can just villainize another country, then all of their problems seem to go on the back burner as they focus on defeating that one enemy, at least for a limited time. Now, in his letter to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul stresses the fact that it's the death and resurrection of Jesus that gives us real and lasting unity. And that unity is made possible between ethnicities and genders and social classes and countries. In fact, Paul says that the church, this fellowship of disciples of Jesus, the church is to be unified. We're to be zealous about that unity, to guard it and preserve it. Last week, we looked at Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, and explored how Paul calls us to to walk in humility, or to walk in unity by developing the qualities of Christ, humility and patience and gentleness and long-suffering toward one another. He calls us to unity that is lasting and genuine, not temporary like Avengers unity. Right? So this evening we're going to pick up where we left off last week by looking at Ephesians 4, 7 through 16. Would you stand with me please as we read Ephesians 4, 7 through 16. Okay, I'm a sucker for context. I'm just going to read the whole, start starting in verse 1, so bear with me. Six extra verses, you don't have to pay extra for that. Okay. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, 
and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here or there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But by speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by every joint supplying, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Lord, make this so in us. As we strive to unpack what it is your Apostle Paul is saying here, what it means, I pray that you would take that information in our minds and move it to our hearts, to the very center of who we are. As we prayed in in the third chapter of Paul's letter, Lord, would you take up residence in our hearts, cause us to look more and more like you, to surrender more and more of our worldly lives, and to take up the interest and the mission of the kingdom of heaven. Amen. You may be seated. Paul is serious about this unity thing. He claims Christ died for it, gave his life so that Jew and Gentile and everyone in between could be one in Christ. And one of the lies about unity is that everyone has to look the same or act the same or to have the same interests or to have the same skill sets. That's Darth Vader unity, where everybody dresses the same in the white uniforms and the stormtroopers don't even have personalities, it doesn't seem like. That's the kind of unity you get in the fascist dictatorship, right? Where people's names become numbers. And look at the architecture in fascist societies. It's utilitarian and boring and concrete and boxy. It's monochrome and boring. That's not the kind of unity that Paul is talking about. If you take a look at creation, for example, the stunning variety of plants and animals. Consider the uniqueness of each snowflake, flowers and bloom. Or the, unique, the uniqueness of human cultures all across the world, you'll see that the God who made that stuff is a God who loves creativity, who loves diversity. The unity we are called to is not a unity of monochrome uniformity, but a unity established by Christ, putting on the character of Christ in the power of Christ. So, the goal is for us to become more like Jesus. Not that we all dress in togas and have long hair and a beard. But we have that character of Christ. And we can only do that with Christ's power working in us. Here in the seventh verse of chapter 4, Paul talks about the grace which is given to each follower of Jesus. I'll say that again. There is grace given from Jesus to every follower of Jesus according to something, according to the measure of Christ's gift. To 
put this positively, Jesus generously gives us spiritual gifts to every person who puts their faith in him, who is a disciple of his. One interesting detail, though, in this sentence, if you're looking at your, at your Bible, is that Paul doesn't use the word gift here. It says he gave grace to people according to the gift, uh, the measure of Christ's gift. That's, that's interesting. Here's why. Nerd moment. The, the Greek word for grace is charis. Can you say charis? It's like carrot with an S at the end with no T. Charis. Okay. And the, the, the Greek word for gift is charisma. Charisma. So charis is charisma without an M-A. How about that? Interesting, huh? Okay, so it says here in the scripture that, that each believer of Jesus is given a grace. Is given grace. Well, scholars are nearly unanimous saying that Paul is probably referring to spiritual gifts here. Charisma. But he's reminding us by using charis and not charisma, that whatever gifts we have are not really our own. What I mean is, if you're given a gift of prophecy or faith or whatever it might be, healing, that, that's not like your special tool that you have and then you can go and use it when you feel like it or hold it back when you feel like it. It is a grace given by God. They're not superpowers that we possess forever and just like, you know, like the Avengers, right? So for those of you who might be newer to the Bible, this whole thing about gifts, let me explain in brief what we're talking about here. There are six different ways that spiritual gifts are talked about in the New Testament. I should say at least six ways. I just came up with six, so it sounds good. There, in general, that word charisma is used of the spiritual gift of salvation. I don't know if you thought about that. Romans 6.23 says this, for the wages of sin is death, but the free charisma, the free gift of God, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the first way that that's used is just the gift of eternal life. Amen? That's good news right there. The second way that this is used is the gift of the Holy Spirit, the charisma of the Holy Spirit. So everyone who puts their faith in Jesus, as a disciple of Jesus, receives the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, which reminds us of the teachings of Jesus, right? The Holy Spirit, which is a down payment, a first installment of our salvation, our adoption into the Father's family. So, eternal life, Holy Spirit. Number three, your own station in life can be a charisma. I don't know if you thought about that. It can be a gift. Paul talks about his gift of celibacy. And he claims, hey, I like my station in life because I don't have to care about a family. I don't have to provide for them, so it makes me more mobile. I can get stoned at a city and then go right back in it because I'm crazy like that and s preach the gospel a lot more fervently. Now, if celibacy doesn't sound like a gift to you, you probably don't have it, so don't worry about it. But for Paul, that was when a station in life can be a gift. Third, or fourth, ministry is viewed as a gift in Scripture. It's the opportunity to serve the privilege of participating in God's, in God's work, in God's redemptive work in the kingdom. Just an aside, we live in a society that doesn't like work. How many bumper stickers are, I'd rather be, none of them are working. Uh, I'd rather be fishing or skiing or whatever it is. 
A lot of times I agree with those. But we were created for good work, for meaningful work. And so it is actually a spiritual gift to be invited into ministry opportunities to serve people in the name of Jesus. The fifth way charisma or gift is used in the New Testament is talking about people as gifts to one another, people as gifts to the church. So uh, God gives prophets and apostles to the church, and those, are, those, are, those people are gifts to us. The apostles pass down the word of God, the words of Jesus to us. The prophets help us to put that word into context and to see how to live it out. That is a gift to me and to you. And finally, the Bible talks about different actual gifts that he gives to people in the sense of abilities to help the church reflect the character of Christ. There's several examples of these gifts, and in particular, there are different lists. Two of them might be 1 Corinthians 12 or Romans 12, and those are some of the examples of spiritual gifts. Uh, By no means are those exhaustive. Uh, So some people have been given the gift of faith. Like, I know we're all supposed to have faith in Jesus, and hopefully you do, but, I mean, there are just some people, right, that have, have faith for that unbelievable thing that's going to happen. And maybe you've met some of these people. It's the, the gift of faith. Some people have the gift of healing. Uh, we do prayers of healing up here. I don't think I personally have the gift of healing. I've seen people healed when I pray for them. I've seen people die when I pray for them. Not because I prayed for them. It just didn't seem to work out. But, you know, so we pray to the Father who loves us, who hears us. But there are some people, right? Maybe you've heard about them or, or, or met some who just seem to have that, that line with God about healing. It's a spiritual gift that some people have. Some people have the gift of proclaiming the word of God. There are tons of gifts in those, in those lists. You can check that out. But even back in the Old Testament, not just the New Testament, we see God giving spiritual anointing or gifts. And the very first one I can think of is a dude named Bezalel, who's basically a construction contractor. And God wanted to build his tabernacle, so he anoints Bezalel with special gifts. And quoting here Exodus 31, it says, that God gave Bezalel the gift of wisdom, knowledge, and skill in all kinds of craftsmanship to make artistic designs for work in gold and silver and in bronze, the cutting of stones for settings and the carving of wood so that he may work in all kinds of craftsmanship. Spiritual gift, working with the hands to the glory of God. So, back to the scripture here in Ephesians, by his grace, Jesus gives gifts to his followers. In fact, Scripture tells us that every person who follows Jesus receives at least one gift. So you might feel giftless out there. If you're following Jesus, trust me, you got one. You got one. We need every follower of Jesus to be engaged in the church. Why? Because no one person has all the gifts. We need each other. And guess what? In the economy of God, the world needs you. The world needs the church. Now, every person has been gifted by Jesus, but that gift is not yours to hoard. It's yours to share. It means the gifts don't necessarily stay with us our whole life. 
Jesus seems to give us the gifts we need for various circumstances and seasons in life. That means there's no room for pride if you have like seven gifts and somebody else has one. And there's no room for arrogance, or, or I mean for, um, for jealousy if you feel like, oh, so-and-so is so much more gifted than I. You know, as a guy who likes to preach, you know, I sometimes wish I were like this preacher or that preacher. Everybody's got a story. I mean, one of, one of the best, uh, Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, he was deeply, deeply troubled with, with depression much of his life. So anytime you think uh, you're jealous of somebody else, just wait till you hear their whole story. Throughout North American Christianity, there um, <laughs> are varying degrees of obsession with finding out your gift. There are more quizzes and tests and inventories than I could possibly mention that you can find out your spiritual gift. Sounds very North American, doesn't it? It fits with our obsession of ourselves. We are the only cult, one of the only cultures in the entire world that would actually understand what I mean when I say, I just had to go find myself when I was in my 20s. Like, most cultures don't even know what we're talking about there, and frankly, I bet we don't either. Um, in reality, the Bible never tells us to find out, to spend a lot of energy on finding your gift. The Bible almost always points us to serving others and to putting Jesus and his kingdom first. I'm not saying finding your gift is a bad thing. I'm not saying we'll never do a spiritual gifts test in this church at some point. I'm not saying those things. But I am saying this. The Bible doesn't seem to obsess over you finding your gift. And I'll also say another thing. Actually, I'm going to say a lot because I'm preaching right now. But if you engage in the life of the church, I guarantee your gift is going to surface. And a lot of times it looks like the things that you're good at, the things that your community says, you know, you're really good at that. I see an anointing. I see a gifting on your life. And you might not even believe it. But it takes engagement to discover those things, not some test you do on the internet by yourself in a, in a dark room somewhere. You'll find that Jesus, in his grace, is going to provide all the church needs to do what the church is called to do. So, the actual gifts are not the point of this passage. The point is that Jesus, as the giver of the gifts... He is the, the giver of the gifts, and those gifts help us grow into maturity. Okay? So Paul quotes this Psalm 68, 18. He says, Paul says, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. It's the same psalm that uh, Jennifer read earlier so well. And that original gist of Psalm 68 is that it was a cry of the people for God to rescue them from their enemies. Just as he had done in Egypt so many years before when they were slaves. The image is this then, God going to battle and taking captive uh, all of these enemy forces and then leading a procession up to Mount Zion to worship, to bring them up to the temple uh, and to receive tribute from these fallen kingdoms that he's defeated. Well, here's the curious thing. If you look in Psalm 68 of your pew Bible, or almost any English translation, you're going to see a subtle difference from Paul's quotation. You see, Psalm 68 actually says, he received gifts from men. It doesn't say that he gave gifts to men. 
So why did Paul change this quote? Well, it must have been intentional. Paul was a Hebrew scholar. I mean, the guy knew his Old Testament front and back. There are several theories. This is a sermon and not a class, so I'm going to give you two, and you can kind of think about them. All right? One theory rests in the fact that there are other ancient documents, two of which are the Targum and the Peshitta. These are other, uh, other accounts we have of the Old Testament. And in those versions of this story, of, of Psalm 68, it actually says that God went up to Zion and that he gave gifts to human beings, to men. All right? So one line of thought goes like this. Maybe Paul knew of that tradition and that's what he's quoting as opposed to the other versions of the Old Testament that, that we have, the majority versions. All right? There's another theory that's social historical. And it goes like this. When a king goes and conquers another country or another kingdom, that king receive, get, receives gifts from men. So I go and conquer the kingdom of Wasserman, and I go over there, Ben, I'm going to receive that gift of that toy. I just, dude, I beat you. you got to give that to me. Okay, so this is mine now. So I received gifts from men. But these are my people over here. And the implication is, whenever a king conquers another kingdom, he receives gifts from that fallen kingdom, but then he gives the booty to his people who fought the war. So he spreads it around. So the deal might be like this. Chris and Corey come home late. Uh, they're both tired from work, and neither one of them has thought about what to do for dinner. So Chris goes to Deanna, to Deanna's to receive takeout. Now the implication is that Chris then brings that takeout home and gives gifts to his family, unless he's really hungry and eats it on the way home. But you see, you see the implication there. So maybe Paul is just making that implied leap that because God received the gifts, he's then giving them out. Whatever theory we take on the issue, the point that Paul is making is the same. He's claiming that Jesus is the one who fulfills Psalm 68. Jesus descended from on high, became human. He went to the lowest point of human life and being crucified on a cross. And then he ascended far above all the heavenly realms. Where have we seen that before? Ephesians 2, where Christ is seated on this throne above all, all forces of, of darkness. He's above all things. He defeated our worst enemy. He defeated death. And that is great news because the last I checked, you and I have two main problems. First of all, no matter how hard we try, if left to our own devices, we sin. Path of least resistance. And if that's true, if we sin, then we're headed for death without Jesus. We will die. And because of these two realities, the best we can do in life is to look out for number one, to get as much happiness and as enjoyment as we possibly can, because tomorrow we may die, and then that's it. And that's how most of the world lives, and that's the tug on my life and the tug on your life. But God, but God sent Jesus to offer another way. Because of Jesus and his victory over sin and death, those who put their faith, their weight, their trust in him gain victory over sin, over death, gain eternal life. And, the, and he gives us these gifts of faith, the gift of eternal life, the gift of the Holy Spirit, 
the gift of the of grace to live our station in life. He gives us the dignifying gift of joining him in ministry, and he gives us spiritual gifts to join in that ministry. But the gift that Paul focuses on next are the gifts of certain people to the church. He mentions four or five, depending on how you read it. Uh, He gives apostles and prophets, evangelists and Pastors and teachers or pastor teachers, depending on how you, how you read that. So let's take this list real quick. First, he gives apostles to the church. Uh, there's a wide range of meaning of apostle in the New Testament. The most basic meaning, sent ones. That's what it means, literally sent ones. So you and I, in some way, are apostles. We're sent by Jesus um, to spread the good news, to be salt and light, all of those great things. But oftentimes, as Paul's been using that word in Ephesians, it has a real technical Usage, and that is those original apostles who witnessed Jesus, who actually met him, who, who passed on that tradition. And almost certainly that's the way Paul is using it here. That num- small number of eyewitnesses to Jesus who are specially charged with passing on th- the tradition of that first generation. Paul was one of those apostles. He keeps saying that over and over uh, before he, he, he does things. So in this technical sense then, we no longer have apostles in the flesh like we did then. Okay, So great, one of the gifts that we get to the church is a dead person. Uh, second, there are prophets. Again, today people still have the gift of prophecy. People speak from the word of God, a word of the Lord from scripture for the present time. But in this verse, the term prophet is most likely refers to the same way Paul's been using it earlier in this letter, as a technical term for one who helped interpret the teachings of scripture that the apostles helped to compile. The apostles and prophets are gifts to the church because they gave us the record of scripture that I'm preaching from now, that we have our Bible studies on, that we try and mold and shape our lives on top of. So the next three groups of people are alive and well in the church today. There are, for example, the evangelists who, as indicated, communicate the evangel, the good news, the gospel to the world. They live the good news and tell the good news of Jesus to the world. Usually evangelists are rooted in a local church, but often their focus is on those outside the church, where a large portion of all of our focus ought to be. When I think of evangelists, I think of Wayne, my brother, who is in the jail on a weekly basis, sharing the good news with people who are not in the church. I think of Wayne at the mission, sharing the good news with people who feel like they're on the margins, right? And I know that there's many of you who are engaging in that ministry, but I think evangelists, I think Wayne, he's a gift to our church in that way. There are pastors who are gifts to the church. God raises them up. To be his under-shepherds, to help care for the church. Pastors are there to nurture and to teach and to lead and to pray. Not to lead a bunch of meetings. And get back to your emails really fast. Just kidding. Pastors, uh, (laughs) all pastors are called to teach. But not all teachers are necessarily called to pastor. So the fifth gift to the church that Paul mentions is the role of teacher. Those who are able to teach the word of God and its implications to the church. Every one of these gifts to the church has at least one thing in common. They are all gifts of the Word 
They're all gifts of the word. The apostles and prophets helped to form the scriptures that we have now. They were the, 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 the living word, the first generation after Jesus. They got it all down for us. The evangelists preach the word of God. The pastors guide based on the word of God. And teach, teachers teach the word of God. And why does God give the church these people as gifts? For the equipping of the saints, the holy ones, the church, every single person who follows Jesus, for the equipping of the saints for works of service, for the work of ministry. Let me put it in another way. Jesus does not give the church evangelists and pastors and teachers so that everyone else can sit around and enjoy the show. He gives these people to help equip the body for works of service. In a way, I, I, you know, I feel like I'm preaching to the choir. I wish we had a choir. We don't. But I feel like I'm preaching to the choir. Uh, you know, I look out in, at the faces in this congregation, and I remember before we even had weekly worship gatherings, a group of you folks, while I was at my family's house uh, for Thanksgiving at Gig Harbor, a group of you went out in the cold with hot, fresh meals to needy families right in our own neighborhood. You were doing that before we were doing things like setting up the sanctuary for worship and figuring out what songs we were going to sing. I look out at the faces in this congregation and I see people who are actively serving people in Jesus' name. We've got teachers in children's worship and teachers in our public and private schools. We've got worship team leaders and we've got artists in our own community. We've got small group leaders, and at the same time, we've got managers and entrepreneurs and supervisors in the business world. It, it goes on. My commitment, then, as a pastor, is to keep us rooted in God's Word and to encourage us to live out that Word in our time and our place. Now, even to focus just on what we do as a church with all of these gifts, that's, that's still not the point of the passage. Paul would, he would agree that we should be engaged in ministry. But his point here is that Jesus gives gifts to the church so that we would walk in maturity. He has a goal in mind. In particular, we're to use our gifts and the grace that Jesus gives us to build one another up in the body of Christ. He doesn't want us walking around as children who are gullible and easily duped into believing any faddish theology or idea that's out there. In fact, Paul talks about these false teachers in, the, in verse 14, and he calls them crafty. Interesting word, carried two strong connotations in the first century. First of all, that word crafty is the same word used to describe gamblers, mostly people who threw a, a first century version of dice. And you get the sense of someone who's looking for any advantage to advance their selves against you. And generally, that's at the expense of the ignorant, the childish. Take a walk through the local bookstore and see the rotating gamut of self-help books. There seems to be no end to what these so-called experts have to say to the answer of your problems. Of course, when you buy enough of their books that they can retire in Bora Bora, you never hear about them again because they've kind of made it, right? The numbers of Christians who still refer to horoscopes and pop psychology is stunningly high. 
without maturity in the word were easy prey to be carried out by every wind of doctrine. And it's not just young Christians, like young people who are Christian that this happens to. The elderly, it happens to them all the time. You, you get someone isolated who watches enough televangelists who tells them that the world is going to end and they better, if they want to help save people, they need to send their life savings in. It happens over and over and over again. So the crafty are out there looking to take advantage. But the word crafty has another more biblical connotation as well. The same word used to describe the serpent in Genesis 3 who deceived Eve and Adam. He was crafty. And we see with that connotation that being immature, it's not just a matter of losing your life savings or feeling gullible. Immaturity can actually lead to death. When we trust the crafty one instead of Jesus, we've placed our allegiance on the side that's been defeated, the side that leads to death. One of the marks of spiritual maturity is that a person is actively engaged and connected with the church, doing life together as followers of Jesus. That means not only worshiping together regularly, but exercising our gifts together, doing ministry together. It also means playing together and eating together. Hey, listen, I wouldn't preach if I didn't think it had transformative power. We wouldn't sing songs. We didn't think that it was good for us and, and, and that God enjoyed it. We wouldn't take the sacrament of communion if we didn't believe that we're called to do it and that in some way we meet Jesus there. But what we do at 6.30 when we go through that door right there and we eat together... In my mind, that's every bit as sacramental as what we're doing in this room. Having conversations together, sharing life together, breaking bread with one another. Jesus is with us when we walk together in unity. Peter O'Brien uh, picked up a small nuance in the mature person that Paul talks about versus the ch childish people. Um, the mature person is spoken of in the singular. So we're to grow up into Christ, to be mature, uh, a mature person in Christ. But when he speaks of children, it's in the plural. It's, it, it's singular. It's, it's, it's as if when you're childish, you're not connected to the whole. You're not part of community. You're off on your own. When you're a spiritual child not connected with the community, you're easy prey for the crafty. Our goal, according to Paul, is to grow up, to walk in maturity. And what does that mean? It's, it's nothing short of becoming more and more like Jesus. It means growing up in love. It means a life where our default posture toward people is love and humility and long-suffering and gentleness and patience. The good news, I mean, this is a tall order, but the good news is that that life is available in Christ. And we find it in seeking Him in community together. So, in the venerable words of one of our covenant forefathers, how goes your walk with the Lord? 
How goes your walk with the Lord? Is it leading you toward a place of maturity, of engagement with the body of Christ? Or is it increasingly isolating yourself? Lord, I thank you that you make this life possible. Not only eternal life, but the good life right now. A life of engagement, a life of meaning and purpose. Lord, help us to do what it takes to surrender and to engage in such a way that we become more and more mature in you. That we're able to see the truth for truth and resist the things that are lies. Lord, help us to, to shelter one another, to care what, for one another in your spirit. Amen.